I'm Senior Podcast Editor Lucy Schmitz. Today, we have a very special episode. Today, we are launching the spring edition of the Georgetown Public Policy Review. This occasion is usually marked by an event with a keynote speaker and lots of celebration, but in light of the COVID-19 pandemic, obviously, we can't celebrate in person. Recently, though, I was able to speak with our keynote speaker, at-large DC Council member David Grosso, remotely. Councilman Grosso joins us to talk about the theme of our spring edition, Power in the 21st Century. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, and thank you for joining us on the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. I'm Lucy Schmitz. I'm sorry that we're not in person instead. I wanted to jump in with a few questions that might sort of get to the Georgetown Public Policy Review's theme for 2020, uh, Power in the 21st Century. And then I also want to talk a little bit about your work on the City Council broadly, and of course, uh, coronavirus response. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate you guys inviting me out for this as well. And uh, anything I can do to support Georgetown, and you guys know I have a long history at Georgetown. Uh, my father taught at the dental school for a long time, and of course, my aunt went to the medical school. My grandfather and both his brothers went to undergrad. I mean, it's like a long family tradition. And I was lucky enough to go to law school as well, so. Yes, Hoya Saxa. Yeah, you know it. <laughs> It's great to see um, a Georgetown alum and get a sense of your work. Awesome. Thank you. So diving into the theme of power in the 21st century and how power is evolving at this moment, I wonder if you have any sense or any thoughts on if there are historical norms or institutions that generally play an outsized role in D.C. politics or um, or whose role is changing now? This is a really interesting question, and I appreciate the opportunity to answer it. You know, we have seen a shift in just who can get engaged in politics to begin with now. It's a remarkable shift, and um, it's happened very quickly just in my lifetime alone. I worked for the District of Columbia Council right after law school back in 2001, and, you know, back then it was almost exclusively doing mailers for elections, you know, going and door knocking, meet and greets. Um, Now, with the advent of the internet and being used as such a strong tool, uh, you can do a lot more. You can do stuff on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, You can actually reach people right in their homes a lot easier than you could before. And so um, what this is going to do is it's going to change the power dynamics. And we've done a few things in the city to try to make that happen. So, for example, we now have public financing of campaigns in the District of Columbia. Um, We have tried to get rid of constituent service funds in the council because of the undue influence of big developers and big businesses. And really, you know, I'll just note that when I ran, it was a transitional time. The first time I ran was in 2012. And we saw a shift in our city from a government that was mostly about how do you support developers and revitalization and big, big businesses um, and not so much a city about how do you support individuals and the people of our city. And I think as democracies mature, it takes time, but eventually democracies become a real instrument and tool and supporter of the everyday individuals in our city. And um, that gives us, I think, an opportunity to do more around equity, mm-hmm. do more around lifting up people who in the past 
were intentionally and unintentionally left behind. How do you see constituents using technology in a new way to reclaim their power, um, sort of from the bottom up? Well, I, you've seen it, I think, most recently in the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, there was a just an in, igniting of power and passion around the rights of people of color around the country, especially people who have been disenfranchised, people who don't have the same resources as other people. Um, and you've been able to reach them through their handheld devices on Twitter, on Facebook, and be able to say, hey, we're meeting up here. Come and join <laughs> us. Or, you know, you saw it happen with Ferguson. You saw it happen uh, with all of the poor black community members who've been killed by police when they've been unarmed. But you see them rising up and saying, we can organize. And I think there's real power in that. We've also seen it in the Me Too movement um, for the first time. You know, you can't do something now that offends somebody or hurts somebody without there being a way for that person or that person's friends to say something about it. And Absolutely. It publicly. So I'm very passionate about the use of these tools to bring about more justice in our community. I was thinking about um, inequality as you were speaking, and we were talking a little bit about um racial and socioeconomic inequality in the city, which you must see, um, especially as the chairperson of DC's Committee on Education. So I'm wondering, what role do you think that policymakers can play in empowering um, the next generation of leaders and addressing some of the educational inequalities that we see between different communities within the district? Well, you know, this is a, a something that we struggle with every day. And I think one of the values that we see with technology that's changing the game is the way that we can collect data and the way that we can really break it down demographically to understand the impact on our poor communities. And in the District of Columbia, you know, it's a divided city, both racially as well as economically. And it correlates that our black residents are poorer have not been given the opportunity to you know, move forward in life economically. And the fact is, is that we can use technology to understand that through the data that we collect and be able to bring it to light and then make policy changes on it. A great example of this is the way that we were doing, I know this is going to sound very wonky, yes. but the way that we were doing the uh, modernization of our schools in the city. Uh, so this was a major undertaking. We're investing billions of dollars. And we recognized very quickly from the data that we had that the poorer communities, Ward 7 and 8, had lots and lots of buildings that hadn't even been touched, that didn't have any work done on them. So because of that data and understanding where, where the money's gone, who it's impacted, uh, what communities got the benefits and which ones didn't, we wrote a law that changed the way we do it to make it more objective, to make it more based on need so that it's a more of an equity analysis and it's something you don't have the time, don't have the education, don't have the passion to go and advocate in the city hall every day. Right. We have the obligation to do it on our own. Right. Well, and understanding those policy specificities is exactly what we're all about at Georgetown and at the Public Policy Review. So I really appreciate your insight there. Um, of course. More broadly, we're talking about these issues as um, policy conundrums for policymakers like yourself today. But how 
how are you working either on the education committee or more broadly to prepare a next generation of leaders for policy challenges that they may um, may face in 20 years? Well, we, we do this uh, fairly often in a couple of different ways. One is I always have a youth-only town hall public hearing in the fall so that we're not having the kind of noise of the adult problems come into the hearing. So we can hear from students who are under 21 years and engage with us. We also are going out to them. So because of social media, because of technology, you see students are organized. But when they organize, they then say, well, who's listening? Is anybody doing what you're saying? So my staff and I make a point to go out and meet with small student groups, to go out and meet with folks that are interested in meeting with us to help us drive policy. And then finally, I'll just note that it's important that we take on as many interns as possible still. And so we work with groups like the Mikva Soapbox Challenge Group, which is just an amazing group that brings youth into our office to work with us. Um, this is a way that you prepare youth for the future to how they can be a real tool for change here in the district by using their past experience in policy work in my office or in the Wilson building, which has been, I think, really amazing help for me and also for them. Yes, absolutely. And um, do you see any policy challenges specifically emerging now that you think will become more prominent as these younger leaders take, uh, take position? No question about it. I mean, again, we still have a long way to go to heal the racial divide in our city. And, you know, this is not something that's just going to go away. It's something that needs to be intentionally worked on for many years. There has been racial disparities, racial oppression. There has been racism in our community now from the beginning of the time of this country and continues today. So how do you give the students who are most equipped to deal with this, students who have experienced the racism in their own home, in their own community, the power to come up and do something about it. Um, These are going to be challenges that are going to go on and on and on. But one area that I think is so important that we should focus on is around mental health for our students. So if you think about dealing with poverty, dealing with racism, dealing with violence in your community, these are all things that lead to a lot of adversity, a lot of trauma in your life. And the question is, how do you resolve that trauma in a way that gives every student the opportunity to succeed. And for me, that means putting more mental health services, more trauma-informed approaches to education so that students are given the chance to really, really do amazing work. Now, be a future challenge, right? That's not something I can solve overnight. And so I'm hoping that the youth coming up see this and we're seeing that happen on a daily basis. Right. Um, And so getting into your work now a little bit, We're talking about the changing power dynamics over time, but I also want to speak a little bit about the unique power dynamics within the district now, um, specifically as a district rather than a state. How do you see that particular designation impact your work on the city council? The the fact that we're not a state? Yeah, the fact that we're a district and, and the unique relationship we have with the federal government. You know... It's really frustrating. It's incredibly frustrating right now, especially with the whole issues around the pandemic. Um, But the fact is is that we do not have full representation in this country. And, you know, when we get two senators in Congress eventually someday and become a state, then you'll see what the real difference will be, is that we have that voice. We have that powerful protector within the Congress that can look out for the 700,000 D.C. residents. But we see it all the time. So if I want to pass a law, for example, in the District of Columbia, 
they get an opportunity to then change it or stop it from happening. Um, a good example of this is the bill I introduced to tax and regulate marijuana in the District of Columbia, which was directly related to a racial equity question. Ten times more people of color were likely to be arrested in the Absolutely. district for nonviolent marijuana offenses. Um, they've stopped that bill from going forward. Congress has. Oh, wow. uh, by Andy Harris from Maryland, who is a doctor who thinks he knows everything and is actually anti-marijuana. So he put a rider on our budget that said, you are not allowed to implement anything to do with marijuana changes or any drug changes in the city. That's completely stopped us from being able to move forward with responsible regulation around the sale and purchase of marijuana in the city. Um, that's just one example. Yeah, yeah. As a, it sounds like as a council, you face unique restrictions that, um, that other city or state um, level electeds might not face. Big time. I mean, it's it's imagine thinking that you've gotten the job done for your voters and then have somebody else from some other jurisdiction tell you, actually, no, you can't do that. And this is what we've had. I mean, the most stark example of this that you you should know about and you guys should really look at closely is the needle exchange mm. program. Are you aware of this program? This is yes, yeah, a little bit. But this is when explain. basically so uh, intravenous drug users um, use needles to take the drugs that they're doing. And they're usually illegal, but not always. And they will often, if they can't have access to clean needles, use dirty needles, which are just previously used needles. We saw during the you know hep C as well as HIV epidemics that that was a major source of transmission of HIV. And so we wanted to implement a program that is based in a harm reduction approach that gives people clean needles and just says, look, give us your dirty needle and we'll give you a clean needle in exchange to try to get more dirty needles off the street. Now, Mike Pence, the current vice president, was in Congress, put a, a rider on our budget that said we were not allowed to implement a needle exchange program with either federal dollars or local dollars. Okay? Oh, wow. yeah. When we finally got that rider taken off, it was thanks to Jose Serrano from New York, who understood our plight and was the head of our appropriations committee. When he took that rider off, within two years, we saw an 87% reduction in the transmission of HIV and hep C between intravenous drug users. That's amazing. This is lives. It's unbelievable. Yeah, that's amazing. On a side note, Mike Pence, when he was governor in Indiana, put his head in the sand again and did not actually allow a needle exchange program in the county that was having the biggest outbreak in the country on H on hepatitis C, and and he just said, "Oh, I'm going to go pray about it for two weeks." Right, That's right. Not a good way to do policy. And you might want to pray for yourself, but praying in the sense of a policy making doesn't work. I can tell you. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so speaking of Mike Pence, he's now the head of the federal coronavirus uh, task force. And I wanted to get a little bit about your take on both federal and district response to coronavirus and how the city council is responding um, with less federal support than other states might receive. You saw the news then that we yeah. got treated like a territory, which no disrespect to the territories, but the District of Columbia is the only jurisdiction that's not a state that pays federal taxes. Puerto Rico, none of the other territories pays federal taxes. And we pay more per capita than many other states. So um, this is something that is very, very disheartening for all of us that we are stuck in this scenario where they, in the, I guess it was the second or third stimulus bill, might have been the CARES Act, where they actually 
cut us out by a tune of almost $700 million and treated us like a territory. We have jurisdictions in this country, states, that got more money, one point something billion dollars, like $1.25 billion, which was about $700 million more than we got. And they have fewer residents than us as a jurisdiction. And so it makes no sense. So I'm being frustrated. Now, when it comes to the local approach to what we're going to do with the coronavirus epidemic, we have just seen a tremendous amount of collaboration, of, of willingness to put down our political differences and work together. And, you know, I am normally a pretty big rebel rouser. I like <laughs> to come up with new ideas and, and play, as you can imagine. I'm just, I really love doing that. But I've also said now's not the time for that. And so my colleagues and I have met regularly with the mayor and her team. We have worked together to help support her. Mm-hmm. I think she's been a very good job to get the message out about stay home, right. you know, spread it, keep six feet distance. And then we're trying to stem the spread. Now, at the same time, the council did what it could do, which is pass emergency legislation. Now, the nice thing about emergency legislation is it doesn't go to Congress. Now, it's only good for 90 days, but in an epidemic, 90 days plus 90 days right. is a good amount of time to work on this. So we did one emergency bill on March 17th, and we just did another one yesterday that expands financial support. It gives people waivers on trying to renew their licenses for now if they need to. It protects people from being uh, foreclosed on in oh, wow. the you know, housing market. It says no more evictions at all can happen during this time. Um, there's a lot of sections to this bill that really lift up. Uh, people that need the help in the district. Right, and provide support. And you can, in this moment, provide support quickly without having to go through the rigmarole of, of Congress, right. which is... You got it. Which is great. Um, but look, let me give you one example real quick. I'm yes, sorry. No, please do. Let me just say this. You know, we have a unanimous political body, the council, all of us, plus the mayor, plus the attorney general, we're all elected and we all agree that we need to do more for our undocumented residents. These are folks that are here that are working, that are engaging in our community as day laborers, as house cleaners, as whatever, landscapers, and that there needs to be more done for them in this same epidemic time. Now, the reason why we're worried is because they're not allowed to apply for unemployment insurance Mm. because they're not a citizen in the district and they don't have papers to be here. So Mm -hmm. trying to do more. When you think about Congress's meddling in the District of Columbia, here's an area where it's directly impacting us. If we do more for undocumented people, what do you think the crazy Republicans in the Senate are going to (laughs) do the District of Columbia tomorrow, right? When we're trying to get support. Yeah, block and and defund. (laughs) Right, exactly. Because they're not big fans of supporting people who immigrate to our country and contribute to our society. So... We're very worried about it. So even though we sure. have an support for this in the city right now, politicians, sure. you can't do it because of Congress. And this is our horrible relationship a, coming back to bite us. And it's a particular vulnerability for undocumented immigrants in the district. Yeah, right. no um, question. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Um, looking forward, as you were saying, there's probably going to be emergency relief bill after emergency relief bill. How do you see... Um, your role in the city council moving forward to uh, recover from this pandemic long-term? Well, I think, you know, Lucy, it's important to know where I come from to say where I think we're going to go. And 
my work on my office has been based in a human rights framework from the very beginning. And this has evolved more into a racial equity framework over the past eight years. And so when I move forward on how we resolve what we're going to do next after this pandemic is over, all the decisions I make will be poorly and hard, hardly, I mean, will be based in that approach, right? So right. everything I do will be decided from that framework, from, from that approach. So what does that look like? Yeah. I, I am the chair of the Committee on Education. I sit on the Committee on Health. And so I'm going to be looking out for the people that are most likely to fall through the cracks, the people that are most likely to not be caught up in our safety net. And we're going to document that in my office so that when this ends up being at, over, we can go back and fix those holes and fix those safety nets and make sure that these people don't fall through the cracks again. And I mean, right now we're fighting that they don't, but they might and they will. And so how do we make that, uh, resolve that for the future? That's, right. what I'm, that's what I'm challenging my staff to do. That I mean, what a worthy goal. Um, you're particularly on the um, Council of Labor and Workforce Development, I think. It's I, called. Am, I um, am. And so I'm wondering in this crisis and more generally how you balance the interests of employers and employees. And obviously in the long term, right now it's a health crisis, but in the long term, there's economic recovery to look forward to and how you will think about your work on that committee. Well, I mean, this is something that I think we all are struggling with right now, trying to figure out how we can balance this in a way that continues to have our economy recover, while at the same time supporting our workers and supporting our unemployed individuals in the city. Um, you can't create more social services out of thin air. You have to have a base to do that. And fortunately, in the district, we have built a long-standing base for our economy now. We've had balanced budgets for 20-some years. We have all of our pension funds paid, uh, fully funded. You know, we now have a universal paid leave program that I've authored and is going to come into effect this summer, which I'm really excited about. So we have a lot of the safety net things starting to build up. And so how do we make sure, though, that we have the – the businesses operating so we can make sure we still have taxes collected, make sure that they still are employing people so we don't have a large number of unemployed people. And I think you have to do it both ends. And I don't, I don't mean that kind of colloquially. I actually literally mean you have to not tax the businesses any more than we currently are so there's no way we can raise taxes. Right. You have to cut the services any more than we already have. So you have to find the the opportunity to save money has to be done in programs that don't impact people. And so what does that mean? It means we have to slow down maybe on tax incentives to big businesses to build more buildings. Maybe we just survive with the buildings we have. Mm -hmm. Have to not have programs that are fun to have but don't have a real impact on the community. We don't know what they'll look like. But right. those are the things sort that are back to basics. On. Yeah, we kind of go back to the basics where we're providing support for everybody who needs the support, but we're also not what I call dinging the businesses anymore, right? We're not giving them a hard time. We're not taking any more money out of their coffers. Right. I think we're uh, almost out of time, but do you have any last thoughts on either power dynamics in D.C. or coronavirus recovery? You know, I don't have, I don't have any additional thoughts than what I've already sure. added. I, I want, I just think it's important for people to remember that it, the work that we do at the council and the work that any government does is only as good as the people who are engaged in the community. And so 
We have people that need to understand that their voice will be heard and that their voice matters. And so whether you are calling in my office, emailing me, you know, sending me a direct message on social media, whatever you're doing, it matters to me to have people engaged. And that's what real public policy is about. It's about the give and take between elected officials, advocates, advocates and advocacy organizations, um, business community, individuals. And the challenge we have in D.C. is to make sure that the individuals who normally have not been hurt, the people who have been oppressed, the people who have been left behind, the poor people, the people of color, that they're the ones that we listen to first. And if we do that, then we'll bring everyone else with us. And I believe that. And so it's really on us. It's our obligation as a city to make avenues available for people to come and tell us what they need rather than us pretending like we know what's best for everybody. And so I try to do that in my office. I think it's important that more politicians do that. And I hope that we do it better and better. As we Thank you so much for joining us. And again, I'm sorry it's not in person, but uh, we appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me and go Hoyas. Thank you for listening to the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Councilmember Grosso. Please check out our spring edition and more from GPPR at gppreview.com. Thank you.